Hi, this is Maggie Rose, and you're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. I started this podcast to showcase women in music who inspire me and who I want folks everywhere to know about. My guests are icons in contemporary music, independent artists, studio musicians, hit songwriters, and power players behind the scenes. All of them challenging the status quo, respecting the hustle, and leading the way for women following in their footsteps. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Salute the Songbird. And yes, it is the final episode of season one. We're back where we started. Spring has sprung. You hear the birds chirping. I'm here in my backyard where I've conducted so many of these walk and talks before our episodes together. But this has been such a privilege. I can't wait to announce all the guests that we already have lined up for season two. And some housekeeping before we begin, I would like to remind you that we are hosting an event presented by Osiris Media called Salute the Songbirds with yours truly on April 28th at Nashville's City Winery. So that's Wednesday, April 28th. Tickets will be available soon for you to purchase. If you're in or near the Nashville area and you want to attend and be there in person, but we're also going to make available this show to everybody, no matter where you are, for streaming. We have guests returning from season one, such as Elizabeth Cook, Gillette Johnson, Kaylee Shore, Nikki Bloom, Nicole Atkins, and a few surprise special guests that will join us as well. It'll be really fun to catch up with some of these women and see what they've been up to since we last spoke, which is a lot of very exciting stuff. And they're going to play some songs. We're going to do a Nashville-style writers in the round that evening. So some music and some updates from some of our favorite songbirds. And one final piece of news that I want to give you before we get to this week's episode is that I've released yet another single from my forthcoming album, Have a Seat. It's called What Are We Fighting For? It just dropped on Friday, March 26th. I love this song. I'm really proud of it. I think it goes very well with the times. And I wrote it with my buddies, Alex Haddad and Brother Love of Them Vibes. There's a really cool video to accompany the song that's coming out shortly. So keep your eyes and ears peeled for all the new music that we're about to unveil to you as we release this album, Have a Seat. Thanks for coming along with me on the ride. Now for the final episode of season one, we have an incredibly special guest. Not only was she a member of one of the most iconic all-female bands to ever exist, but she's also a very accomplished author. I enjoyed reading her memoir, All I Ever Wanted, in preparation for this conversation. And I watched a great documentary about her and her band on Showtime called the Go-Go's. So that should give you a good hint as to who I'm referring to. It's Kathy Valentine of the Go-Go's and of so much more. But she's incredibly cool, laid back. She is a consummate rock star, super chill vibe, casually talking about all these insane things that she's done throughout her career and her life. And she's got a lot of other things that she's looking forward to being a part of, more books that she wants to write. Her story's amazing. So Regardless if you're a fan of her and the Go-Go's, you will certainly be a fan of this week's guest, Miss Kathy Valentine. Hey, Kathy. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? 
I'm pretty good, thanks. Welcome to Salute the Songbird. I'm so excited to talk to you. Such a fan of yours. And I have to say, I've, I just finished your book, All I Ever Wanted, and enjoyed it thoroughly. Learned a lot about just how to be in a band myself with how honest and brave you were with your memoir. Yeah, I think it's a good, um, I don't know, training manual, you know? Absolutely. A lot, of, a lot of lessons to be learned in there. I've been reading a lot of memoirs in preparation for these interviews that I've been doing, but I do think that yours was one of the bravest I've ever read and just the transparency that you had and sharing your story was really remarkable and inspiring for me. I would encourage everyone to read it. And if you're a fan of the Go-Go's, you'll really enjoy it. And if you weren't already, I think that after having read it, that people would definitely appreciate what you all went through and just the trajectory that you were on. It was just astounding. The Go-Go's is like part of the story for sure, but it's, it's, you don't even have to be a fan to enjoy or find something in the story to resonate. I think it's very much a, a human story about a lot of things that people go through. So I absolutely. Saw, I worry that readers will stay away because they're like, oh, I'm, I was never a big fan and which is fine with me, but I don't think that that is a prerequisite for an enjoying it. Absolutely. But I think even in the beginning of the book, you start with the fact that your daughter asked you the question, why did you write it? And the simple answer was that this was a story that you had to share. And with all the experiences that you had been through and just reflecting on those lessons that you learned and being brave enough to share it with musicians like myself, but just any lay person who's had aspirations and struggles and baggage of their background that they that they come to this world with. It was really profound. I loved the documentary on Showtime as well and just thought it was really awesome. You're you're a true rock star for sure. And uh, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> it was fun. So you're in Austin, Texas right now. I'm in Austin and uh, it's been really nice lately. I feel lucky to be here. Yes. Austin is one of my favorite cities and you, you started there as a musician and I think just taking people through your particular origin story would be interesting for the listeners because you kind of had a bit of the rock and roll lifestyle even as a child. So by the time that you got to the place where you're at the whiskey and around all that, you were you were used to it. You knew what was going on. And what this whole podcast is about is propping up other women who inspire me and diving into their stories and the perspective that they have as women that has colored their experience in this industry. And I never wanted to ghettoize women by having this be a podcast where I only feature female guests, but I did think that it was a pretty prominent theme throughout your career to surround yourself with other women and female energy. And you have some really astute points throughout your career that I think only a woman could have from the Annie Leibovitz Rolling Stone cover to just the way press would react to an all-female group. And it's, it's quite amazing. But if yeah. you don't mind, take us back to the early days of Austin before you even went to Greenbrier, the school where you could build your own curriculum and where you discovered guitar. I grew up in Austin. I'm a, I was a single, uh, an only child of a single mom. I guess it works the other way too. An old, a single child of an only mom. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, I was pretty much given free reign to, you know, 
do what I want, figure it out. I, I've my earliest memory is that it was my job to take care of myself. That my mom wasn't going to do it, my dad wasn't going to do it. I mean, I knew that I had a place to live and that there would be food on the table. I knew I wasn't going to go hungry. I felt loved, but I did certainly didn't feel parented at all. And uh, that can be a pretty confusing place to be uh, for uh, someone that's an adolescent coming into those preteen years, which are hard under the best circumstances, I think. But I do like to talk about music a lot in my book because one of I, I find that sometimes when women are doing interviews or, or talking about their career, women in music, it, it often feels to me like the music is left out of it. You know, I, I, I feel like, you know, everybody knows what Buddy Holly and Muddy Waters and Carl Perkins was to the Stones and the Beatles. But you don't always, I remember like being surprised and happy to hear like how much Chrissy Hine was influenced by Ray Davies and the Kinks. And um, I just remember always thinking like, I want to know more about what musical influences and um, not even influences, but what motivated women that choose music for a life because it's not the most common choice. You know, I, I think of us as as rare birds, and that's one of the reasons. I, another reason I wanted to write my story was that I've been in bands now for forty five years. I mean, it took a pandemic to make me not be in a band. Otherwise, I'm right. constantly in a band, and that's been an amazing, wonderful thing. In the last year or so, I've discovered in ways that I let it limit me. So that's another topic. Uh, maybe I'll touch on later, but. Uh, trying to go back to what you said, I did try to talk about music a lot in my book. And I started out, you know, as a young child, you know, remember it, Top 40 Radio was my access to music. I didn't have any older siblings. I wasn't hanging out at the hip record store. It was right. pretty much AM radio. My mom didn't even have a stereo. You know, we had very little in terms of possessions. So I was a radio kid. And until I heard Cream, and I was young, and it sounds weird now. I like to point this out because when I was writing my book, I was like, this is crazy. How could I be responding so viscerally to Sunshine of Your Love when I'm nine years old? But as a mom, I was like remembering, wait a minute. I saw with my daughter how profoundly effective and affected that music was to children of a very young age. And so I was able to recognize, because when I was writing, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, I know this, I was very meticulous about my time frames and getting everything straight. And so when I worked out, because that was a big defining thing for me musically, when I heard Sunshine of Your Love, I was in Lubbock, Texas, my, my cousin was playing it over and over. And it was the first time I'd had a different reaction to music than, you know, my kind of fun, uh, you know, Turtles and and uh, Tommy James and all the, the bubblegum pop that I loved, which I love singing and dancing. I love the Beatles. But that was a different thing. And it was like, whoa, I felt a different reaction. So when I wrote it, I'm like, how could you be having this reaction when you were nine? And then I had to remember, well, wait, I saw how my daughter reacted, you know, to different kinds of music when she was very young. So I think that's an interesting thing just to talk about how from a very young age, music really starts, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. What songs did your daughter react to? Oh man, she she really, I mean, she was just a, a huge music fan from the get-go. I mean, as a parent, I tried to kind of 
steer the taste. I was always playing her the Ramones and Blondie and, you know, she was into her radio stuff, like, you know, Katy Perry and, and Taylor Swift, which was all good and stuff. But I just saw like the intensity of the reaction. It was, it was like, you know, she it transcends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. she didn't, she wasn't like a passive listener. This was someone that it, it was even from a, like a little baby. I mean, you've, we've all seen that video of that little baby with the Italian father and he's playing Led Zeppelin and this little baby's just like freaking out a little toddler. Pure joy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, music was, was important to me when I started playing guitar, I was, 14 years old, I, I had a little bit of music background. I had played the violin in school. I had musical people in my family, but I started playing guitar. And by that time, by 14, I was a complete just rock and roll fan, lover, you know, I was just a little rock and roller and all my favorite bands were males. Uh, right. I, didn't, I didn't see women doing music that I really, that responded with me that much. Um, and I knew that there could be a, a woman rock star. I, I knew who Grace Slick was. I knew who Janis Joplin was. This was a little bit before Heart. But those were the only women I saw. So I bring that up because I'm playing guitar. I love all these bands. It doesn't occur to me that I can be in a band. It just doesn't occur to me. And that happened very soon after that No Connect became a real connect or connecting the dots when I was in England and saw Susie Quattro on a TV show. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen a woman playing an instrument, uh, fronting a band, leading a band, in the band, uh, being a rock star. I'd never seen that. And that was when kind of all the, everything just kind of came together and that was all I wanted to do. And I wanted to do it with girls. I wanted to find girls who wanted to do it as much as I did. And I think part of that was, you know, I didn't know how to go back and just find bands that were guys. You know, I felt like I needed to be with people like me to do it because I had never seen, you know, there were bands, you know, at the same time that this is happening to me, you know, it's happening to, you know, by the time I'm 16, you know, the Runaways are playing in a band. And prior to me even knowing about them, of course, was Fanny. And there was bands in the 60s, but we didn't have the internet. We didn't have YouTube. In Austin, there wasn't even, you know, there wasn't fanzines or anything like that. So none of that filtered down to me. And, and the visibility is what made it happen. And it's one of my biggest takeaways that I think is a little sad is like how many other girls, teenage girls would have started bands like I did, you know, in 1974, 75, at a crucial time. This is when a lot of like really culturally significant music is being made and rock and roll is really transcending into, you know, some really cool places and women are largely absent from it. Mm -hmm. It was a very transformative time, but it's the whole you see it, you can be it thing. And I yeah. know it's Susie Quattro, the way that you set that up in your book, the perfect outfit, the shag haircut, the posture on stage, and then you reveal that it was Susie and yeah. what that meant to you, the significance of that. I mean, you were that for, you are that for so many women now. 
and yeah. the camaraderie that you were looking for, like they became your family. And the fact that you were so ready and willing to, as a guitar player, say to Charlotte when you ran into her at the Whiskey A Go-Go at the show, yeah, I play bass. And three days later, you taught yourself how to play bass, like just shows your conviction to be a part of something like that and be part of an outfit that would be inspirational to other contemporaries or could be contemporaries for you. Yeah, my my goals and dreams, you know, took a little few shifts when I first picked up the guitar and decided I wanted to do that and saw Susie Quattro. My first goal was to be like the best female lead guitarist ever, like to be up there with, you know, the Jeff Becks and Jimmy Pages and to just be in a band, just like be like Mick Ronson or so. I just wanted to find my lead singer and be the guitar player, be the Keith be the Brian Jones. And uh, I was just like, that was it. And then with punk rock, I started realizing this can be quicker. You, the, the, the goal kind of shifted from being the best guitar player, which takes a lot of work and a lot of time and you want everything now. And it, my goal became more like, I just want to be in a cool band. That mm -hmm. was the real thing. It's like the rest will come, you know, but my, my first goal wasn't to um, to be anything other than like an amazing, I wanted to be the best female lead guitar player ever. So I've always had a little bit of that in me where I am vicariously getting this thrill when I'm, when I see like an Orianthi or a, mm -hmm. you know, one of these Tell Wilkenfeld. Uh, I, just, I don't know Tell. I need to. Oh, uh, well, she, she played bass with um, Jeff Beck, but she's also an amazing guitar player. So I get this thrill when I see, and of course, when I met Kelly Johnson, uh, who took my place in one band, and then we had a band together in the 80s, and she was this like insane. It's a, a part of that was always my vicarious thrill because it was my part of my dream that I kind of shoved aside. And uh, in my 30s, I actually started going there again not that i i never thought like i would be famous for it but i thought it's not too late I, I can still be the guitar player i dreamed of being and for a while there you know i i did really really well till i became a mom but anyway by the time i got to la that dream of being the best guitar had really been supplanted with i want to be i want to make it in a band i want to make it in a cool band you know i didn't want to be in a lame band i wanted to be in a really cool band and it didn't take much to realize that the Go-Go's was that band, was going to be that vehicle to achieve that dream. They certainly were. And I love the fact that you learn the material so quickly. You're jettisoned into a string of sold out shows at the Whiskey in your first week with the band. Shortly after the IRS deal happens, Miles Copeland is just sending you on a path together that you all are doing, like collectively working towards that is kind of unprecedented in the pace at which you were excelling and recording music. And you just were firmly planted in this group of women with all these different personalities and being adaptable to shifting from guitar, which you love to then becoming a bass player, but not really skipping a beat. Like you were around all these people who had influenced you to become a musician in the first place and you kept your cool where does that that sense of self come from where you just were able to exist in the midst of this world that had essentially been changed overnight 
it was what I had set my sights on. So to me, like just joining the band felt like a success. I felt like I had found a band with great songs that people liked, that could sell out clubs, people that I liked. And it felt like this very insular, like a private club. It felt like the sisters I'd never had, the family that I'd never had and that I had, I think, really longed for. And uh, so to me, it felt very successful from the, from the minute I joined them. And everything that happened from there on was just kind of piling on to what was already for me a success story. You know, I had moved mm -hmm. to LA. I wasn't working a day job. I was paying my rent through playing music in a really freaking cool band that people loved and with pe and with my best mates. So to me, that was, if, if that was as good as it got at that age, that, Pretty was, damn good. that was yeah. a lot to me. That was like it. So to get a record deal, just piled onto that. And then to find out we're going to make an album in New York City, that was insanely exciting. I loved writing about this because I really got to revisit and, and remember and put on the page in an effective way where I think my reader really feels like they're there next to me. But it was terribly exciting. I mean, who gets to stay in a hotel for like <laughs> seven weeks in New York City, you know, and make an album with your best right. friends? With Richard Goderer, too. Yeah, with a producer who produced one of my very favorite bands. He did the... Blondie. The and yeah, he did Blondie. And um, so I, I obviously felt very successful then, too. And then mm -hmm. everything that happened was just kind of a an exponential explosion of what was already, to me, a very great place to be. You know, then we're on tour. And not only are we selling out a club... We, I mean, we can pull in in our van pull into into cleveland or minneapolis or boston or you know charlotte north Carolina. anywhere we went the it was sold out people people and it was a club but it didn't matter it was a club and we sold it out in another town and people wanted to see us and we were we were happening you know it was it was all happening and i felt like okay this i mean this is the life i, I wanted that i wanted this kind of to me, this high role in rock and roll life with my best friends, having a good time, not the regular life of getting a job and getting a husband and becoming mm -hmm. a mom. Like I ended up doing all those things. But um, at 22, I didn't want anything like that. I wanted exactly what I had and I wanted to keep it very badly once I got it. You talk about going on tour and a lot of the people who extended opportunities to you in your early 20s were male musicians. And often you say that the males who supported you early on in your career tended to be fellow musicians because they could recognize in you your talent and the hustle and how special the dynamic was between all of you. And I just think that that's a really cool thing to acknowledge is that the people who knew what was up and who were also proficient musicians themselves and the men who were propping you up were men who were doing so because they knew that you had the goods. 
Yeah, I mean, that happened before the go-go. I mean, the go-go's didn't really need men or anybody to help us out. We, we were doing fine on our own. But prior to that, when I was in Austin still, guy musicians, you know, gave me a lot of validation. And I don't mm -hmm. know if I would have... I don't, I don't know how I would have taken it. It might have made me just more determined, but I, I didn't have to find out. You know, I, I got support. And I think there was a kind of a, a sensibility or something that they that they picked up that I was not just like trying to, you know, hang out with the band or be the girlfriend of the band or anything. I wanted to be somebody that was in a band. And, and I think that they, that musicians picked up on that. But in the in the Go-Go's career, you know, that wasn't so important. We were already doing it, but it did. I did notice it a few times, like with I write about the police who we toured with mm -hmm. being very supportive. And you surpassed them on the charts. Yeah. You were out supporting them and your album surpassed their albums yes, and sales yeah. on the charts with Beauty and the Beat. And well, we how congratulatory tour. they were. They bring you in some Moe and cheers to your success, which is how it should be. And, um, you know, Miles Copeland being your label head and his brother being a part of the police helped facilitate that relationship. But then you guys delivered beyond. It wasn't like you were given a favor. You were then able to win over all of the police's fans and make them your own. Oh, yeah. On I mean, your merit. It did a lot for our career, you know, because we were a very different band. Absolutely, for sure. But I think that that's an even bigger testament to your talent and the excitement of what was going on around you. So with Beauty and the Beat, which was the first record that you all put out, I know that you are coming more from the punk rock perspective. Richard, the producer, had you kind of slow the tempos down so that he could hear your lyrics and a few things were changed, but it ended up kind of getting the go-go's to a sweet spot where you were punky, but you were pop and there was something that was palatable for so many people and it was the perfect storm that made it the record that it was and then your song that you had already written when you were with the text tones vacation became the single for the follow-up album after all that success and like at this point how many years had you been part of the band with everything that had transpired well i i played my first shows at the end of 1980 and our first album came out the summer of 81. And then I think we started recording Vacation in 82. That's crazy. That's a that's a pretty quick turnaround. And I love how you reflect on those times of just how fast it was, like maybe if we had had more time to write more material, etc. But you were still able to put your stamp on everything as a writer, which I feel like is really important and adds to the dynamic of having a band together. That was something that was really interesting for me with the outfit that I'm part of is the contributions that everyone makes and what the implications of that are down the line as you're trying to keep it together and stay above the technical and monetary aspects of being in a group with people. But you had come as a pretty fully formed musician to all of this and you were able to get in there. What was the dynamic like to be able to introduce your own works? Well, it was a condition. I, I, when I was asked to stay on permanently a couple of weeks after I did the first shows, 
I said from the beginning, I, I want to be one of the songwriters. And, and they were happy to get a musician of my caliber and also someone at a band member that that was a, a songwriter. But having said that, you know, they had been together a couple of years and they had a, a good body of songs. When we went in to make the first album, you know, Jane and Charlotte had written so many great songs and I really didn't think I was going to have anything to bring to that record. And yet I was really lucky that Can't Stop the World got on it. Pretty much tacked on to the end, the producer Richard said he wanted to add one more song and he didn't want to use any of the ones that he had already rejected. So um, I was really happy when that got added in there. I was very insecure. I, 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 um, I presented uh, myself as very confident and sure of myself, but I was insecure about my song. I felt like I didn't know if it was as good as, as the songs they had written. It took me a long time as a writer and an artist to to believe in myself, even though, and I, it's funny because I've thought about this a lot since writing my book and since doing all these interviews and talking about it a lot. I think, you know, one question people often ask is what would you do differently or what would you tell your younger self? And I think that being in the cool band and wanting that so much kind of, it was wonderful and it was great in so many ways, but I do, looking back, if I was going to do something different, I think I would have, on this, I guess in the first, and when the Go-Go's were first successful, there wasn't really time to do anything but the Go-Go's, so it mm -hmm. couldn't have been any different. So it's pointless to say what I would have done different because I couldn't have done it different. But um, I feel like what I would tell somebody is just make sure that you don't place your whole worth into this entity, you know, because it, it can become like, where you don't know who you are other than right. part of that whole. And that's essentially what happened to me when the Go-Go's broke up. I had lost all sense of identity. I'd lost, you know, I wasn't a fully formed songwriter or a fully formed anything. But when would you have had the time to even ruminate yeah. on song ideas and fill up the well and like you yeah. were just but it took a, nonstop. Yeah, and it took a long time. I don't think it wasn't until... I did my very first solo album. And another reason I didn't do this stuff is because I wanted to be in a band. I didn't want to be the star. I didn't want to be the solo artist. You know, I just, that wasn't what I wanted. So it wasn't like I was going to carve out these big parts of life to kind of bolster my own identity. But looking back, that's when I really started getting confidence and believing in myself. And it's such an important thing to have. I don't think I was, I was probably 40 whew, in my forties before and did a solo album. And I only did that be, not because I wanted a solo album, but because I was pregnant and I wasn't playing in a band and I wanted to keep doing music. So I just started doing it. And it was only after doing that, that I was like, when I had nobody like rejecting my ideas or, you know, going through the committee, like, oh, we like this, or we don't like that. You know, you, you start that like- That can mess with your head, for it, sure, to have yeah, the constant scrutiny. Yeah, because it's like, you don't ever get to find out what, when, when it's something shot down, maybe it isn't the best idea. Maybe what gets filtered through is the best thing for that situation. But given the freedom to do whatever I wanted, I made a really great record. And I was just like, it, and it wasn't like I needed it to be 
heard or to sell a lot or to be known, but I needed it for me because it was just really, and I, and I would, I would tell that to anybody younger. I would say, make sure you give yourself enough opportunity to find out what you're capable of because in the band setting, it's very much, you know, by committee. Absolutely. Well, and also just the idea of making a piece of work that yes, you want people to like, and you want it to be received well, but it's that whole idea of being in the arena yourself and making sure that you like what you're doing and not giving all the power to the people in the cheap seats and and letting them size up what you're doing. And nobody can take that away. I mean, it's like now I can look at that, anything I make, and I don't generally finish it if I'm not really freaking proud of it. it, I don't, I just don't bother with it. I'm, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist. So pretty much everything I've done I'm really, really proud of whether it's gotten an audience or not. And that's a nice thing to have because that way when I'm in any writing situation, when I'm working with the Go-Go's, when I'm working with the Blue Bonnets, my band, nothing takes away my confidence and my my musicality and my creativity. And at the same time, I don't think I'm right all the time. And I, I love collaborating. You know, often what you come out with as a collaborator is better than what you would do on your own, you know? It's a good check. Yeah, so uh, I think what I learned in, in, in the go, I learned a lot about songwriting. I mean, you know, my lyrics got a lot better. Think well, also, you were so young. I mean, it's of course it gets better and you're, you're putting in your 10,000 hours plus to become an expert at what you're doing. You get more educated and knowledgeable. I mean, that's another thing I've noticed that the more I educate myself, the better my songs are. And it it can be education musically with learning chord inversions or progressions, or, or it can be educating yourself, reading books and just giving yourself ideas. And that makes a good songwriter, you know, otherwise you, I just feel like you're going to be writing the same song over and over again. Being a perfectionist, as you say, and loving what you're doing, everything that you're putting out is what I think leads to sustainability in being someone who's going to make music for a lifelong career, as opposed to having like a great album. You have to you have to be a perfectionist. You can't really put the toothpaste back in the tube if you put something out that you don't love. Yeah, I did a I did a songwriting podcast in Canada yesterday and we were talking because I just released um a new version of a Go-Go's song that I wrote with Jane on the third album called Beneath the Blue Sky. And I did a video for it and I recorded it with my daughter. And I added a bunch of lyrics and they were like curious, like, why did you add lyrics? And I said, because I wrote it in 1984 and, and they could it, it wasn't as good as it could be. The you have a idea, new perspective. Yeah, and the idea of a song being kind of a living breathing thing that can evolve and change was was interesting to to the people i was talking to and i'm i'm very much like that it's like it's not like you're destroying the old song it's still there it still exists but um i i kind of like doing that i i look at songs like little properties i think of them as little little properties that sometimes they need to be remodeled well, it's just like any you know, trauma that we have in our life. We remember those without a timestamp. But if we really process those properly, you realize that like 
no, that happened then, this is now, and you're able to bring that new perspective to something and build upon it. And I think that's something that's come out of uh, this pandemic and doing a lot of remote writing is the invitation to revisit, 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 get it right. Just because you had one song session where you collaborate with someone doesn't mean that that's where the song ends. And more people should do that. I think if we edited ourselves more than we'd have conviction about what it is that we're putting out. Like I have trouble writing with people that settle too quickly, you know, and because well, then it's the I'm difference sure. between a good and a great song. Yeah. And I find that I have to write a lot of good songs to get to a great song. Are you working yeah. on a project with Blue Bonnets now? No, we haven't done anything since the pandemic. Uh, I've done, I did that remake. I, I did the soundtrack to my book, which was fantastic. I was just going to ask about that because I read your book through Audible. So I got to hear you narrate the story. And then I heard all the songs that you put in between chapters. And it was just brilliant because you're taking excerpts from the chapter that's forthcoming and yeah. it's so crazy how you wove that together that was the most like creative interesting fun music thing i think i've ever done in my life and i i love that i could employ everything i'd learned along the way as a songwriter or throw it out the window if i wanted and I just couldn't wait to sit down. I never knew where anything was going. I would just sit down. I would look at my book. I'd go, hmm, I think I'm gonna do something for that chapter. Yeah, and I just wanted the guy to sit still and show me something cool on the guitar. Like just yeah. little phrases here and there that made me so excited for what was coming up. And then also the musical element of it all and getting to hear what you're doing now incorporated into your retelling of this story. It was it was really cool. and something that I hadn't heard, like a, a special edition album that's tied in with the audible version of your book. I had such a good time doing it that I think one of the things I'm excited about doing next is a collection of literary short stories with soundtracks to each song. Mm -hmm. because I just see it as like, okay, not every songwriter can write stories and not every author can write songs. So it feels like, um, it feels like my little, like a niche I can kind of do, do and develop. It's I'm, I'm very much a strategist. I, I like to find where my strengths are and 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 go run with them, and mm -hmm. and be really honest about where my weaknesses are and avoid them. And um, so it's just kind of that's either something that's innate or you figure out how to do, and it's a good life skill. It was almost like a mix of sung and spoken word and it's really cool i encourage everyone to consume the book in that form if you can because your narration is also very entertaining and just feels like you're talking to a friend as i'm hearing these stories and your candor with just these people who you were in a band with, with the go-go's and ginger and your relationship with her um, you all being friends now today, but you're still able to speak so honestly and put that out there, which you know, isn't a story that you needed to share with everyone, but it must feel so liberating to have been able to lay it out that way and put that lens on your past with the clarity that you have now. I felt like it was a good story and it was compelling and I, I want to be seen as a writer and 
I definitely see you that way. It's, yeah. it's awesome. I, I figured that was the best way to get on the map as a writer because for a very, very long time, no matter what else I do, the thing that is that I'm known for is playing bass in the Go-Go's, which is a fantastic, wonderful And guitar. Yeah, but that's kind of what people think of. So I am excited to kind of be Kathy Valentine and say I this was a wonderful thing that happened back in 1983. But there's other things that I have to bring to the table and to get a chance to, to do that, you know. And at 62, it's pretty awesome to put that message out that, you know, you can keep growing and finding yourself and finding what challenges you and excites you and interests you and, and put it out in the world. Thank you so much for your time. It's so nice talking with you, Kathy. Love what you do. All right, okay. good. So nice to talk to you. Thanks, Kathy. Bye. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening this season. I can't wait to see you for season two of Salute the Songbird. Keep up with Kathy on her socials at kathy.valentine. Of course, go give the Go-Go's a follow at official Go-Go's and give Kathy's band, the Blue Bonnets, a follow at the Blue Bonnets. Do yourself a favor and check out her fantastic memoir, All I Ever Wanted. And it's worth a viewing for the Go-Go's documentary on Showtime. And to keep up with me, my music, and my touring calendar, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at I am Maggie Rose. Go check out my latest singles, Do It, and my brand new single that just dropped on March 26th, What Are We Fighting For? Please do yourself a favor and also check out the show that we're putting together on April 28th, presented by Osiris Media, Salute the Songbirds, with me, Maggie Rose, featuring Elizabeth Cook, Gillette Johnson, Kaylee Shore, Nikki Bloom, Nicole Atkins, and special guests. And you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash I'm Maggie Rose, where you can get exclusive Salute the Songbird content along with new music, live stream concerts, and more. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thank you so much once again for listening to this first season of Salute the Songbird. And since we're going on a vacation of sorts, we felt it was appropriate to close the show with Vacation by the Go-Go's, written by Miss Kathy Valentine. <laughs>